Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A warm welcome to Whitehall Sources. We are about to bring you inside analysis on UK politics in association with The Resident. Did you know that The Resident Covent Garden is the number one rated hotel on TripAdvisor out of nearly 1,200 options in London? Now, opinion pollsters would tell you that that sample size is enough to convince you to lend resident hotels your support the next time you elect to stay in London or Liverpool. Thanks for being here. Whitehall Sources starts now. Integrity in public life matters. And that is why, that is why it is right that the right honourable member has resigned. He's a pathetic bully. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald with Kirsty Buchanan, a former advisor to Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State for Justice, and to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Also on the podcast, Oscar Reddrop, who advised Boris Johnson during his time in office. This week, as we take you behind the door of number 10 Downing Street, the resignation of Gavin Williamson. Should political parties even have people who are enforcers? And how does it even work? Plus, Matt Hancock gets slurry poured on his head. And rev your engines, Labour MPs. In Checkers and Balances, a former Jeremy Corbyn advisor will tell us what's changed in the collective mindset of an opposition party now firmly with its sights on potential election victory. Thank you so much for finding us on Whitehall Sources. We love that you are there. We would love for you to stick around. Next week on the podcast, something particularly special. Make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss what's coming next week. Find us on social media as well. Just search Whitehall Sources on Instagram, on Twitter and on TikTok. You'll get extra clips or you can post your comments and continue the conversation there as well. And we would love to hear from you. I think it's high time you introduce yourself. Tell me your name, where you're listening from and one thing that you love about the podcast. 
Email hello at whitehallsources.com. The email address, hello at whitehallsources.com. We'd love to welcome you in to become one of our sources. Welcome along. It's episode nine. This is Whitehall Sources. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. Since we last spoke, well, goodness me, what on earth has happened? Um, I was uh, kind of involved in Chris Philp committing news last Friday on the radio when he said it was a, a bit of a cheek for people to complain about the conditions that they were being kept in. Um, he said, if people choose to enter a country illegally and unnecessarily, it is a bit of a cheek to then start complaining about the conditions when you've illegally entered the country without necessity. Uh, Chris Philp said that on Times Radio and then he ended up in all the papers within about 20 minutes or half an hour. Um, I just want It's just one of those things that where in the aftermath, I was considering actually Chris Philp, and this follows, Oscar, what you were saying about the Rwanda deportation plan, which mm. you said um, sort of generated the exact argument the government wanted. Chris Philp actually saying that, we got loads of texts from people agreeing with him. And actually it's the sort of language that people were kind of almost welcoming that actually they do think people have a bit of a cheek to complain if, if they don't like the conditions that they're now staying in. It's, yeah, it's that, almost that exact phrase is reflecting some of the language that is probably used about, you know, really difficult to talk about contentious issues like immigration in, you know, pubs, you know, out and about by, I would say, people who aren't necessarily, you know, politicos. You can, you know, it's like, oh, it's a bit of a cheat, really, isn't it? Like, you can, mm. and I think Chris Philt reflecting that language is, in some ways, what we were saying last week in terms of Suella and, you know, they, they do speak for a portion, a uh, you know, large portion of the country on this issue. And yeah. They speak with it with a frankness uh, that I think certain people, you know, uh, really respect, actually. Yeah. Um, it, is, it was notable, and it just—it was one of those comments that, understandably, just caught on like wildfire, and it got responses of all of all kinds. But um, but yeah, it was just interesting to kind of note that that, that news was committed um, about a week ago by by Chris Philp. Uh, so that's happened uh, elsewhere. What else has happened, Oscar? Actually, just to keep it with you for a minute, uh, how disappointed are you not to be going into the House of Lords, courtesy of <laughs> Boris Johnson? Outrage. Yeah. I was just waiting by my mobile phone, sleepless night, phone, phone call never came. <laughs> we can start the campaign here if you want. Do you want us to see what we can do to sort that out? I can see Kirsty, you're ready to I can see you almost blow up with rage about some of that list, I imagine. Uh, look, I'm in no position to, you know, people in glass houses and all that. I've got an OBE, so I'm getting You do you? An OBE yes. I didn't know you had an OBE. Show some so, respect, Callum. I'm sorry. So, do you, do you want to know how the process goes? So, I was I was working in a government department at the time, and the former prime minister's uh, former political secretary rings me up, and I go, "Oh, hello, Parky." Blah blah blah. Having a quick chat, and then he goes all sort of, you know, official, and starts to read out this spiel, and he said, "And so it gives me great delight to tell you <laughs> that you have been awarded." And then my phone, the government department I was in, the, the, it's like many government departments, the mobile phone signal's not great. <laughs> and he went, blah, 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 BE, and I missed the, the front bit of it, you know. And I don't wish to sound that the, these sorts of things matter to me, but the first letter is everything in a BE. <laughs> yes. And I said, sorry, what was that? And he went, well, you've got a... And then it went quiet again, went BE. And I went, I'm sorry. I said, is that an M or an O? And he, <laughs> 
<laughs> and he went, he's getting a bit annoyed by now because I've ruined his moment. He went, and oh, and I went, oh, really loud. <laughs> oh, and I was know. super chuffed. And then I have to say, in the top 10 most terrifying things I've ever done in my life, going to the palace and getting the award is easily in the top three. You are so frightened of... Wow. You know, falling over in front of everybody, and all you can hear is the blood rushing in your own ears as you. Wow. And they say, well, you know, you step forward, you wait for the first part of your surname to be, to be called, and then you step forward and you turn to what is now the king, um, and you and you step forward and he gives you the ward and he will talk to you, and then when he puts out his hand, and all you can hear is I'm going, right, step forward, step yeah. forward, and I'm trying to talk to His Majesty. Um, and all I can hear is just the, my blood rushing my ears because I was so terrified. Wow. Wow. There you go. I didn't know we were in the presence of such um, esteemed contributors. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Shall I, shall I wear my little OBE next week? Yeah, you should, actually. <laughs> yeah, you should. Absolutely. Pin it to my shirt. I'm going to start introducing you to Kirsty Buchanan OBE. And you had, because I think the issue that some people take with this latest list, and again, like making no judgments, and obviously I worked with, you know, some of the people on that list and they were like, amazingly talented and really genuinely really nice good people but i think sometimes people have an issue with you know working in politics if that's all you've done in your life in your career well no, what I'm, kind of I'm, life experience is that was you, what, you i'm not gonna lie you know obviously as honored as i as i was as i am to have it <clears throat> it is quite a conflicting set of emotions and mm. when we were there there's a sort of reception in the palace when you when you first get there and all the all the different gongs are sort of herded together into different areas so we were with all the sort of other OBEers as it were and me and a and another person who'd also uh, got an award mine was for political and public service uh, but in essence it's primarily for political service and me and another friend were, were talking to this woman and she, we said oh you know what did uh, you know what have you got your award for and she said well you know I um set up a charity for, you know, uh, children, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, I think, but primarily it's because I, and she basically reeled off this, you know, list of amazing, <laughs> you know, devotional work that she'd spent her entire life handed over to helping other people that were less fortunate than her. And she said, oh, 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 what have you got your awards for? No, I've just sort of went, yeah. oh, well, you know, and sort of oh, shot me. Because we were so embarrassed. Uh, we, we got ours for not delivering Brexit. Um, As a political <laughs> advisor, in some ways you are helping those who are less fortunate than yourselves. You know, bumble, bumbling <laughs> prime ministers and secretaries of state. You know, maybe that's the underlying thing here. Um, but, I mean, when we got ours, the, you know, the papers were full of, like, you know, rewards for failure and all that sort of stuff. Mm. I mean, look, I, I, I get it. You know, the system is complicated and suffice to say, I think it was entirely right that it got broadened out a few years ago to include, you know, people that had actually made the world an infinitely better place, of course. Yeah. So, Oscar, no, we're not going to have to call you Lord Red Drop anytime soon, I don't think. So. I'm still, maybe my, uh, my letter beard. got lost in the post or, you know, and he's checked my voicemails. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Get Boris on the line. Nah, it's not good enough so. I think so, mate. <laughs> I have to say, though, Oscar, if you did go to the palace, you would actually have to get a haircut. <laughs> no. To be fair, I think you've had one, haven't you, now, for this Has week? He? I think so. <laughs> I, think so I remember in 2003, David Beckham went and got his MBE and he had cornrows in. So Really? It, 
It's good enough for Bex. <laughs> I, I literally dare you to go to the palace with cornrows. <laughs> <laughs> it can only be a matter of time. Uh, right, well, yeah. that's uh, that's Lord Dred Red Drop and Kirsty Buchanan OBE. Um, I'm still a man of the people, fear not. Uh, right, let's also discuss this, because this has happened since we last spoke, of course. Brace yourselves. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Hi. How's it going? I'm Matt. Sean. Very Matt. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so this is Cam. This oh is my God. Hello. Yes. I thought there were going to be more people. No. It's uh, no. I'm just. I've just arrived. Matt. <laughs> 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 that is Sean Walsh finding it hilarious that Matt Hancock has arrived in the I'm a Celebrity jungle. Um, just one of Mr. Hancock's many great moments so far. I want to just um, play you this as well. Quite a mix, really. Quite no. a but, and quite mainstream. Like but what? I haven't got... I'm not going to, you know, put a tattoo but, of Ed Sheeran on my neck. Ed, I? You like Ed Sheeran? I love him, yeah. I love Ed Sheeran. And I'm from Suffolk as well. OK, lovely. Yeah. I love that, um... Dancer in the Dark. You between my arms. That one. Barefoot on the cross. Don't get me singing, I'm terrible. No, no, Listening to my favourite song. When you saw you... What's it called? Um, perfect. It's called Perfect. Yes! <laughs> Don't get me singing. Nobody was asking him to sing. He started singing. <laughs> and then <laughs> proceeds to... But what's he doing? He's going to be on the masked singer next. Oh, oh my you days. That's such good a good shout, Kirsty. Oh, my word. So, yes, uh, Matt Hancock has arrived in Australia. He is now in the jungle, even as we speak. Matt Hancock <laughs> is in the camp of I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here. I think perhaps uh, an interesting development on this was Chris Heaton-Harris, a Cabinet Secretary, um, on Sky News this morning saying that staff in the Houses of Parliament have downloaded the I'm a Celebrity app to vote for Matt Hancock to do all the trials and whatnot. Uh, I just, will this feel like an opportunity for staff to get some sort of revenge on, <laughs> on him? And I'm not saying he's an awful person. I'm not saying he was an awful boss. But I just wonder, it must be quite fun, actually, for staff to be able to do this, I guess, in some ways. I just come back to my, <laughs> to my point from last week. If you really want to, you know, express your displeasure about this, vote him off. Yeah. Don't, I mean, I know the whole country is going to take great delight in making him eat various bits of animals' anatomies. I get all that. Yeah. Uh, but actually, that's what he really wants, is to be on there being the good old boy mm. sticking up to the Bush Tucker trials. Just yeah. vote him off. Yeah. Um, and I just, I was watching him last night and he was said, oh, you know, he was doing the whole, I want people to understand that politicians are humans too. And all. I mean, no other profession feels, you know, you know, unless entertainment and exposure is your actual trade, no other profession feels the need to show people that they're in a humanity. It doesn't get... Patrick Valance going on I'm a Celebrity because people need to see what scientists are really like or Chris mm. Whitty. It's just ego. Puncture the ego, vote him off. Patrick seems more like a Strictly guy anyway. So. Oh, he'd be great on Strictly. <laughs> I would vote he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> Regardless of his actual capacity and ability to dance, I would vote for him. Yeah, exactly, to stay in. <laughs> Uh, so there we are. The controversy around Matt Hancock continues. I suppose there is an argument. It's around whether he can convey that feeling of evoking sympathy. I think that's where this is going to get to. Is there going to be a turning point, actually, where people start to feel sorry for him? Well, ju just, just on that, Callum, it was really interesting watching all the celebrity reactions. I thought Sean Walsh's was hilarious. It was just, you know, just bursting out. The laughter. It's got yeah. tears of laughter. I thought that was quite a natural 
reaction. Chris Moyles' reaction, um, I thought, was very kind of legit and fair, where he kind of said, wait, shouldn't this guy be at work? You know, this is a sitting MP. Like, what's he doing here? And I get that moral judgment. The thing that I... And it's a question more than anything. I'm not, you know... The thing I don't get, people in there making a moral judgment about him and the responsibility for uh, basically holding the guy almost solely responsible, it felt like, for some of the awful, sad things that happened during that pandemic. I'd sometimes feel that's quite harsh. Mm -hmm. And by the same, if that's the the attitude you're going to take, you know, and it's kind of fair enough. Like, you know, you little expletive, I couldn't see my loved ones and I feel like that was because of you. But with that logic, then you kind of have to shake his hand and be like, well, thanks for the vaccine that saved my potentially, you know, father or elderly mother's life. So yeah. I, I don't quite get the logic. Do you see what I'm trying to say? I, I do, mean, I'm not yeah. Being very no, I, I know what you mean. And I think there's... How, a... can he, how can he show his face in here when millions of people died of yeah. COVID? It's like, well, yeah, but... Is but that it, it's, truly it's the empathy point again, and it's the perspective point, isn't it? If you lost a loved one during COVID, you will still be uh, laid low with grief and you will still have a loss of anger. And if, you know, if you can't look at the health secretary, the former health secretary, and hold him mm. accountable, at least for some of that, mm. then, you know, where do you put that anger you know and if you no, I, yeah if you've I, lost I, I a loved one and the man it. that was responsible for uh protecting people in care homes at the time of protecting health workers at the time this was actually his job his responsibility yeah i'm not sure who else you're supposed to hold account to account for it one last question i want to ask in this uh since we last spoke section is where is the home secretary where is suella braverman and i ask this because this week Just Stop Oil protesters have been uh, holding up traffic on the M25, stopping traffic basically because of their protests. And this week, uh, several journalists were arrested uh, by police officers while they were reporting on the disruption, on the protests, etc. It has caused a lot of um, blowback, as you would understand. Why are police arresting journalists? And just before we started recording this on Thursday morning, The Hertfordshire Police and Crime Commissioner David Lloyd said to LBC, one of their reporters was arrested, said to LBC, your editorial policy needs to reflect on whether or not we want to be part of the problem, which is how Just Stop Oil managed to get their message out there so very successfully. So he seems to be having a goal at a news reporting radio station and news reporters for reporting the news and getting arrested for it, which is a notable take. Complete disgrace. Complete disgrace. A journalist in question at LBC, she uh, was taken to a police cell where she was held for five hours, I think. Yeah, Charlotte Lynch, right. she says, yeah. And that is horrific. And I think LBC were well within her right to... Because I know, you know, a series... I knew Nick Ferrari covered it, Tom Swarbrick covered it. Of course they did. One, she's a colleague. And two, even if she, you know, she was working for a different um, uh, news organisation, I'm sure they'd be covering it as well because it's horrific. And then for that statement to come out off the back of it is beyond tone deaf. And I honestly, honestly, honestly think that if that's the attitude, 
to your point, Callum, mm. we sh you would expect maybe the Home Secretary to talk about Well, this it is because it, because it, this Police and Crime Commissioner... It's pretty scary president. Yeah, basically, as Kent, you know, to paraphrase the Police and Crime Commissioner, it's about he's sort of said in interviews today that journalists are giving Just Stop Oil like the oxygen of publicity. That's the kind of idea that he's getting at. And I just want... And Kirsty, actually, that is my question, is surely the Home Secretary there's a responsibility on her to say something when a police force is acting in this way, police and crime commissioners saying these things, journalists are being arrested. Is it not the role of the Home Secretary to now step up and say something? That is a perfectly fair point. I suspect what the uh, line of defence that her aides will start with is that operational matters are a matter for the police and not a matter for the Home Secretary. Mm. However, whilst that is technically true, politically I totally agree with you, it's utterly untenable for her not to take a view, not just at the utterly disgraceful arresting of a of a reporter. It'd be great if the police spent more time arresting the stop the oil protesters and uh, who are holding yeah. the country to ransom and and less time uh, less time arresting people that are doing their legitimate jobs trying to report on it. Um, and the comments made afterwards are just beyond uh, beyond disgraceful. My personal view is that if he doesn't retract those, he should consider his position mm. you know journalists in this country are part and parcel wow. of a functioning liberal democracy uh, they play a vital part in our country they put themselves at risk and in danger quite often in in response to doing their job uh, and they should be applauded not locked up and told that it's their fault Let's see what happens on that story. Suella Braverman might emerge. There might be more ridiculous comments from the Police and Crime Commissioner as well about journalists. He does say, by the way, in his interviews that he defends a free press and all of that. Well, it'd be nice if the rest of the comments backed that up. Uh, right, still to come then on Whitehall Sources, let's think about the week that has been, what it means for Rishi Sunak, the challenges that still await. Stay with us. Lots more to come. Whitehall Sources, thank you very much for being with us. You can email anytime. Of course, the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, make sure you're following the podcast and you subscribe to the podcast. We're also starting to put things on YouTube. So if you'd like to watch bits of the podcast, we are, we're all very scared about this, uh, then feel free to go and have a little search for Whitehall Sources on YouTube as well. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok for extra clips. Right, we must talk about Gavin Williamson. Gav is gone. Um, as political playbook hilariously titled their morning email. That is quite good. Is, to be very, fair. I mean, very is, he, bad, is, it? is he Gavin a bad day? Very good. <laughs> Kirsty used to be a political editor for a Sunday newspaper, of course. That's where that headline writing prowess clearly comes from. Did you ever write the headlines or am I speaking out of turn? No, that's the job of the oh, sub fine. Well, never, you should have written, written the headlines with that sort of prowess. <laughs> um, so, yes, Gavin Williams gone. Uh, the Enforcer. The Enforcer. This is what he was. But he's really gone because of, um, well, uh, sweary text messages that he sent to the chief whip. Um, he told uh, an MOD official to slit your throat. Uh, he was using an MP's private life as a tacit threat. Um, various journalists really piecing together lots of bad stuff about Gavin Williamson. The point is he's gone. Uh, I guess it's about his behaviour and it's about what it does for Rishi Sunak because he made the decision to appoint him in the first place but he's lost his enforcer. Is that a legitimate role, that sort of enforcer-typed person, Kirsty? Is that, is that a, a valid thing for someone to be and how they operate? Well, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? You know, chief whips throughout the years do their job 
through a combination of things. It's partly pastoral care, but it's also partly, frankly, knowing where the bodies are buried and sometimes using that, if you like, in the dark arts to, to, to get their way and enforce discipline. That is what the role of a chief whip is. However, you know, we are moving as a society into a place where what used to be acceptable or put up with or whatever in the workplace is now no longer seen to be acceptable. You know, if I went into journalism now, you know, the ability to go out at like 11 o'clock and hit the pub and not come back and do my job for the rest of the day, this is just not professional anymore. You know, journalists don't go off. Callum nodding away there as if that's not exactly what he does. <laughs> that's the life I signed up to. I was horrified to discover it's not the reality. It's an outrage. Let's go back to the 80s, you know. Um, but, but, but that's the point, you know, profession, you know, that you've had a professionalism of all sorts of areas, including journalism, and, and politics increasingly is one of those areas where, you know, parliamentary staff, civil servants are quite rightly demanding higher professional standards that, that go with that. Now, some of the, look, I mean, on one level, am I surprised at the stories that come out about Gavin? No. Mm. Uh, Gavin was one of those people who particularly loved that kind of House of Cards, Francis Urquhart kind of shtick. He reveled in it. He played up to it. Um, you know, he used to have a tarantula on his desk called Kronos, you know. Um, and he liked he liked this kind of you know dark arts role and 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 thought it was fun. But what he what he missed in 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 all of that was that the world had moved on and he had stayed the same. And the sorts of things that you know were acceptable, you know, back in the eighties or were, were he thought some of it maybe he thought you know was was part of his shtick and part of his his fun. Mm. Actually, you know. People, People don't find that funny anymore. You know, they don't they don't find it acceptable in a workplace. And I think I think, you know, <clears throat> in terms of all the sorts of things the parliamentary estate have really got to get to grips with, they still haven't got to grips with, you know, the sexual harassment. You remember at the start of the year, I think it was Caroline Wheeler at the Times wrote that brilliant story about fifty-six outstanding sexual harassment complaints against serving MPs, including some cabinet ministers. They're probably not cabinet ministers anymore. I don't know. Or maybe they've gone full circle and they still are. I I, I, who knows? But, but, you know, what has happened to those? You know, where do parliamentary staff, you know, go when they have complaints? The system has been fixed a bit, but it's nowhere near, I think, the reform it needs to. Um, and, you know, when you get incidents like this, it's just a very quick reminder that actually you know, what, what passed for acceptable in politics even 10 years ago is no longer acceptable. Yeah. I do, I'm quite fascinated, I suppose, by that. First of all, the kind of change in atmosphere, which in this context feels valid and right and, and, and good. But just in terms of sort of this role, and, and there is an element of the game of politics in all of this, isn't there? Which is where you're, you, know, you are trying to convince MPs to, to be on your side or to be against something else or whatever. There's, there's the art of persuasion in all of this. And do you just want how, how that actually works? Is it literally a case of you kind of text the chief whip or you text somebody who you know knows something about somebody else and you're kind of trying to get them in to wrangle and to um, you know, have a quiet word and... Well, in Gavin Williamson's case, it would seem like Lord some sort of information over them, sort of threaten them or whatever it, it would seem from his, the messages that he sent. Is it literally like that, where there is all of this behind-the-scenes communication, knowing who knows what about whom, and just trying to accelerate that process? 
I mean, it's not quite as, on a day-to-day basis, it's not quite as melodramatic as all of that. Most of a, of a whip's work is number crunching and pastoral care. So the chief whip has a deputy chief whip and then a number of whips who all have uh, a flock. Uh, and in essence, they ring around their, you know, their flock of MPs, check how they're doing, anything we can help with, etc. Remind them about vote, take slips so that if an MP can't attend a vote, they arrange for a pairing vote with the other side so that their vote can count. It's a very kind of, on a day-to-day basis, it's a very uh, kind of humdrum sort of uh, environment. However, um, you know, what tends to happen when an MP gets into a jam, the first thing they do is go to the chief whip for help and support and guidance. Uh, And depending on, on what that is, that might then revolve having the whip removed from them and being referred to the independent uh, in- investigative body, but but most of the work is pretty much kind of pastoral, number crunching, day to day business in the house. You need to be here for this vote. It's a three line, you know. This is a one, you know. This is one line whip. You can all go home early. It's that. It's that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I would say by and large that the gossip that happens and the rumor mill does actually genuinely take a back seat because you are just being hit over the head with a really stressful. Uh, and genuine important issues of the day. So there isn't a lot of time for it. That was my experience anyway. Um, With Gavin, I would say that what's interesting, I think, here is, you know, operationally, you know, Simon Hart as the chief whip and Gavin kind of being that, I guess, the the chief whip whip kind of lurking around, around the edges, the unofficial whip. I think operation is a real loss for Rishi because it's, it was kind of the perfect good cop, bad cop system. Simon Hart is a really, I, I know, and I, I know Simon relatively well from when I was working at Number 10, is a really, really lovely guy. And then obviously you'd have Gavin as the inverted commas enforcer. So that's a real, real loss for Rishi. And we look at some of the decisions and the disquiet and the difficulties that November the 17th is going to bring. You know, there's going to be some really difficult votes coming up over the next few months and someone like Gav- having Gavin around would have been would have been useful. The other thing I think about the, the Gavin Williamson thing, which is kind of odd to me a little bit, you don't want to excuse... It, it's just, it, you have to... You, it's like, what is bullying? And and then what is kind of almost, almost a self-knowing, hey, I'm the chief whip, I'm saying something a little bit, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, no, I don't mean it really. You know, that kind of dynamic... And the difference between, I mean, you know, is Wes Streeting calling Jeremy Corbyn senile? I mean, is that bullying? Or if, is that offensive? Or should there be questions asked about that? I, so I, sometimes I just don't know where the line is. Speaking to a journalist uh, yesterday at a newspaper I won't name, there was a whole load more to come on Gavin. So I think, you know, ultimately, if it seemed a bit too soon, which to me it did, because I still think it's a Westminster bubble issue. I don't think people down the pub are talking about this bloke they've never heard of saying nasty things about MPs they've never heard of. So I don't think the cut-through thing had happened. So I was surprised that the decision has been taken now for him to leave. But speaking to journalists, there was a hell of a lot more to come. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's my understanding too. I mean, uh, picking up on your point about good cops and bad cops and Simon Hart, I've read a couple of briefings in the paper already that say... Is Simon Hart too nice to be the chief whip? The common criticism you heard about Wendy Morton, who was the former chief whip, who is in the middle of this 
uh, Gavin Williamson saga because of texts that he sent to Wendy Morton, the chief criticism of Wendy Morton was that she was too nice to be the chief whip. So on the one hand, you know, you need party discipline and you need enforcement. Uh, and it does kind of, you know, and yes, there are lines and clearly lines of, you know, if if what we read is true. And obviously Gavin Williamson uh, says that some of this is not true in its characterisation. Um, you know, but if some of this is true, clearly there are, you know, lines that have been crossed, you know, and by quite some margin. Um, and I and I take your point about, you know, there's a difficulty with bullying. I I I, I accept that. You know, it's harassment is a legal definition and has a and is legally defined. Uh, bullying isn't. Um, some of this is unacceptable in the workplace, in a professional mm. workplace. I think. That is the sort of language which would be helpful right now. Mm. It is clearly unacceptable to tell anybody in the workplace to go and slit their throat. Now, you can call that, you know, bullying or you can you can question whether that's bullying and it's just a intemperate, appalling fit of rage. Uh, but what you can absolutely I think we can all agree on is that is utterly unacceptable to say something yeah. in the workplace. And it and it and that is where you know, that is where I think it, we would get further in this argument about, you know, what is acceptable in a workplace if we if we looked at it in that prism. But it, the chief whip is really, really complicated. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, um, I think Mark Spencer, Spencer. Uh, also got criticisms of bullying, didn't he, during Boris's mm -hmm. time? You know, what people used to, you know, and they said, look, politics is a rough old business. It's a, you know, it's a bruising kind of game. But, you know, clearly there is a new generation of people coming to the workplace who won't find acceptable what, you know, the generation before put up with, if you like, and said, oh, well, that's all part of it. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, they're perfectly entitled to draw the line about, you know, where they, what they find acceptable or not. But I do think it's important that we concentrate on what we call professionalism in the workplace as opposed to whether something is or isn't bullying. Yeah. And actually, when you talk about... Rishi's standards that he set for his government when he got there, which were about <laughs> integrity and professionalism. And I think it is that point on which he falls down. I have an awful lot of sympathy with Rishi right now. Everybody says, oh, well, you know, poor judgment. Everyone knew about Gavin, etc." He's taking, I presume, and I don't know, I've not spoken to the, to the team about it, but I presume they have taken a calculated risk to have him inside the tent because it's safer to have him inside the tent mm. than outside the tent. You know, and that is the difficulty. We get back to the point about trade-offs and compromises. And when you've inherited a very ill-disciplined, factional, conservative party, you're going to have to make decisions that in an ideal world you would not make. I want to just play you a bit of a, a, bit of a mega mix of Prime Minister's questions, um, where Sir Keir Starmer was really quite keen to talk about uh, Gavin Williamson. Have a listen to this. The member for South Staffordshire told a civil servant to slit their throat. For the record, I did not know about any of the specific concerns relating to his conduct. Everyone in the country knows someone like the member for South Staffordshire. A sad middle manager getting off on intimidating those beneath him. But everyone in the country also knows someone like the Prime Minister. The boss who is so weak, so worried the bullies will turn on him, that he hides behind them. Integrity in public life matters. And that is why, that 
is why it is right that the right honourable member has resigned. He is a pathetic bully, but he would never get away with it if people like the Prime Minister didn't hand him power. I obviously regret appointing someone who has had to resign in these circumstances. If he can't even stand up to a cartoon bully with a pet spider, what chance has he got of running the country? The British people want real leadership on the serious global challenges we face, and that's what they'll get from this government. So it was Prime Minister's questions yesterday. Keir Starmer not really letting up on it as an issue and with sort of some of the things we've already spoken about in mind. One thing to consider, Kirsty, I wonder if any of this... Um, and this is potential speculation, but hey, let's go for it. Do you think any of this could have been riled up by Team Trust in some way? Is there anything to gain there in some sort of revenge or, you know, if we can take out a cabinet minister pretty quickly, then actually that's a bit of a slap in the face for, for Rishi Sunak. Is there anything in that, do you think? Uh, n- no, I don't sense the hand of Team Trust here. I might feel that it might have been stoked a little bit by the hand of Team Boris, but uh, I'm not entirely sure that Team Trust has got an awful lot to gain from this. I don't think there was any particular animus between Team Truss and Rishi in the way that there is and exists still between, you know, the the arch acolytes and allies of Boris and and Team Rishi. I do think, though, that, you know, um, listening to Keir, again, it comes back to the people in glass houses and throwing stones bit, isn't it? Look, I, you know, having enforcers is, you know, in politics is 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 as old as, you know, well, as, as as I can remember, Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell, I've just been looking up to remember that, you know, Alistair Campbell was once, uh, not accused, he did, uh, accost Michael White, who was then the political editor of The, uh, of the Guardian, and physically accost him, I don't, you know. So uh, Theresa May had complaints um, about her own, former agent Timothy and Fiona Hill and some of their behaviour towards other cabinet ministers. You know, there is a you know, there is a long tradition, if you like, of, of bruises in politics. But the thing that most struck me about Key yesterday and kind of most annoyed me about his moral hobby horse that he'd climbed on was and back to the point that we were making last week about Rishi reminding people about this. And I think this is one of those points where I thought actually it is good to remind this. You know, Keir Starmer stood on a platform to elect Jeremy Corbyn to become the Prime Minister of the country, a man who allowed anti-Semitism to grow and fester within his party to such an extent that most of our British community were thinking about packing up and leaving the country if Jeremy Corbyn became the Prime Minister. So when you talk about Gavin Williamson and what he did or didn't say to Wendy Morton, it would be really nice if we just had a bit of kind of recent memory here and a sense of perspective here because bullying or unacceptable behaviour or whatever you want to call it comes in many forms. And I think if you ask if the British Jew- Jewish community watched that exchange yesterday, they would have, you know, been struck by the rampant hypocrisy of it. Mm. Still to come then, we want to consider whether Gavin Williamson falling, the loss of the enforcer for Rishi Sunak, the questions about his appointment in the first place, is this just the start of problems for Rishi Sunak? We've got a lot of others on the way that we'll talk about next. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. And unlike politicians' approval ratings, if it's consistency you yearn for, Resident Hotels are rated at the top of TripAdvisor. Out of 1,200 hotels in London, the resident Covent Garden is number one. 
Resident insiders who are trained to give you secret tips and tricks of the neighbourhood in which you stay are, to be honest, a better support than most cabinet secretaries provide to the Prime Minister at any given moment. In London, you can also stay in Kensington, Soho and Victoria. Eddie C reviewed the resident, Covent Garden, on the 6th of October. He said, Awesome hotel in superb location. Great staff and beautiful, clean and comfy rooms. Highly recommend. Your exceptional experience awaits at resident hotels. Let us consider then the NHS and particularly, specifically, nurses, first of all. Kirsty, this is something you mentioned a few moments ago. Nurses are, well, they voted to go on strike, which is absolutely historic it is unprecedented we can actually use that word where it is meant to be used which is nice um but this is i mean this could be the start of a really difficult spell for for rishi sunak and i suppose first of all how much of it ends up at his door when it comes to strike action is this a problem for him to solve well it's an interesting one isn't it i've been um flagging this rcn ballot for quite some time on this podcast because uh, i was struck by both under uh, Boris Johnson's premiership, but also under Liz Truss's brief premiership, that there was very aggressive language being used around the uh, ongoing rail strike, uh, in large part because the uh, government wants to bring in uh, tighter union laws around strike action and industrial relations to make it more, di- not to make it more difficult to have a ballot, but then to be able to get minimum service guarantees in when there is a ballot going on. So they've used quite strong rhetoric around the rail strike. And then for a long time, I've thought, well, OK, this works while you've got, you know, uh, rail workers on strike. But when you start to talk about, you know, uh, health workers going on strike, nurses going on strike, all of a sudden the public sympathy swings very much back, I think, towards the, the, the plight of, of nurses and makes that kind of heavy rhetoric quite, quite difficult. This is the first time in the RCN's 106-year history that there's been a ballot, a successful ballot for strike action. And it is obviously not something that, that nurses do lightly. What is fascinating about this, though, I was driving home last night listening to Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, being asked about this. Now, nurses are asking for inflation plus five. So, in other words, a 17% pay increase. And Wes Streeting was asked, you know, if Labour in power, would they be uh, accepting this? this uh, demand from from the RCN and I expected him and I was driving along thinking oh here we go wait for him to dodge the question and to my surprise he actually said no you know it is out of step with the current economic climate that that we find ourselves in uh, and therefore we don't think we could meet this there are other things that the RCN are looking for and we think there's a deal to be done here so actually the difference between Labour's position on this and the government's position on this is is non-existent. I then tuned in to listen to Steve Barkley, the actual health secretary, and he said much the same thing, that it's out of step with the current economic climate and there is an independent pay review board for a, for a reason and that has got a recommendation and that is what the government accepts. But there are other issues around this pay deal um, that they think they can work with the RCN and, and, and get to a deal. So I think if Labour were taking a... A more nuanced position on this i think this might might have a potential for a problem i think it has a potential for a wider problem around the the growing kind of public sector strike action that is where mm. i think the bigger problem is for them you do still have a national rail strike going on they are balloting at the moment the result of that ballot for the rmt comes out next week and that would mandate them for another six months of strike action i think the cwu are on strike so it's going to be a very difficult winter of of 
I suspect growing public sector strike demands. These are perfectly legitimate demands, but in the current economic climate, they're just not affordable. And the current economic climate will be the focus of this podcast really in the next week or so after we get that autumn statement on the 17th of November. Um, And new uh, research from the New Economics Foundation today with the TUC shows public services need £43 billion more just to avoid a further collapse in quality, according to the NEF and the TUC. And so that is the backdrop, Oscar, with which the government is now having to approach the autumn statement. We've mentioned the strikes, the strikes yeah. are there too, but actually the money that is that needs to be found here is absolutely astonishing. Uh, that, they, that poll said they need more. They need £43 billion pounds more to avoid any further yeah. collapse in quality. So that would keep things as it is. Well, they're going to get less. <laughs> they're going to get less. I mean, that's like the, the grim reality here. I do think... Rishi Sunak's uh, performance, almost, up until now as Prime Minister. I described it um, when I did some media stuff yesterday. So we're in almost a bit of a, you know, the calm before the storm. It's a bit of a dead zone for him. It's going to be so kind of premiership defining the next few weeks for Rishi and how he performs and how he handles that statement and all the infinite, it will feel like, political fallouts as a result of it. I think what Labour, you know, the broken Britain, the kind of the, 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 the Labour lines, I think you'll see, even if they can't commit to certain spending, they will, I think, use uh, the autumn statement as uh, a way of slingshotting the Tories back to a cold, austerity, broken Britain. I think you'll start to see all the, the, these phrases and terms flying around Parliament. And then, Kirsten, I'm going to add in another problem, which is Northern Ireland and Brexit. So Northern Ireland currently awaiting confirmation on when they'll they'll get an election for the Assembly. Um, Once again, so Chris Eaton-Harris, considering his options, I think, when it comes to to how that'll work. And then Brexit does lurk in the background of the Northern Ireland, well, not even in the background, let's be honest, in the foreground of the Northern Ireland issue as well. Yeah, sound of can being kicked down road yeah. because can is full of worms, if that's not <laughs> too much of a mixing of my metaphors there. Look, oh no, uh, I mean, the Northern Ireland Secretary tried again to use the spectre of an election to try and force uh, mm, some yeah. break in the deadlock on Stormont when that was clear that that wasn't going to happen. The uh, the election simply got kicked into uh, loosely next Easter There is a big natural deadline here for the government, though, I'm afraid, um, which is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which is next April. Now, obviously, um, uh, US President Joe Biden, uh, who has made his displeasure about the protocol abundantly clear, uh, has also made it clear that the the United States is preparing uh, to celebrate with quite a lot of... uh, pointed, you know, pain aimed at the uh, the UK government uh, celebrate the Good Friday Agreement. So this is a can that I don't think you can kick down the road for much longer. And and actually, it comes back to the to the, the what sits underneath all of this for, for Rishi Sunak and the big problem he's got, you know, there's almost because the trust government was so chaotic and so spectacularly uh, was such a spectacular fiasco so quickly. There was almost a sort of, you know, for a week or so, there was almost a kind of, oh, you know, the prime minister's, you know, new prime minister, few. But actually, yeah. all the fundamentals underneath do not change. You know, the economy is still on a precipice. The, the party that sits underneath Rishi Sunak has lost 
any capacity for discipline and is now so riven with factions that it is borderline yeah. ungovernable. We didn't get Brexit done. And at some point, you're going to have to do two things that, you know, the right of the Conservative Party are going to find really hard to, to swallow. You're going to have to reach a deal with the European Union, where I suspect in return for a reduction in those checks that come from uh, from crossing your goods uh, over the Irish Sea and over to, to Northern Ireland, in return for reducing some of those checks, you will probably have ongoing jurisdiction by the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, which the right of the party will not accept. And also, in terms of trying to right the economy right now, you're going to have to raise taxes. Now, they're doing all the right things within number 10 to, to soften the pitch, roll the pitch, prepare people for what's coming. And I, I made a list earlier on because there is so much briefing going on. You know, you've got a potential uh, freezing of the of the 45p threshold, which allows millions of people as their as their pay rises to get dragged. It's called fiscal drag dragged into paying that that higher rate. You might reinstate the 50p tax rate. You'll expand inheritance tax, bigger windfall tax for energy companies. You might delay the uh, imposition of the social care cap. Maybe you will halve capital gains tax. So that will take more people in. So all of that, you know, from a government which has already seen personal taxation rise to a 70 year high is something that the right of the party is going to find mm. really hard to accept. And you've already seen, you know, Ian Duncan Smith out on the airwaves saying, well, let's wait and see with this budget next week on the 17th, whether it goes, quote unquote, over the top on taxation. There's about 50 MPs within the right of the party have already said, you go too far and you will be in trouble. So that is yeah. why, you know, uh, Rishi Sunak is out rolling the pitch with the public, rolling it with the party. He's on a charm offensive. He's, he's, he's getting the Tory right in to try and explain how little room he's got for manoeuvre here. But all this stuff's going to catch up with him next week. And whether the party, which is borderline ungovernable now, will, will, yeah. will accept this very much remains to be seen. But the choice he said to them at the start, unite or die. You know, the, the Labour Party is still far ahead in the polls. It is still on course to win the next election. If they don't get their act together and accept some of these tough choices and put up with some of the difficulties that the Prime Minister is, you know, is going to have to make tough choices. They don't accept some of this. They will be annihilated at the next election. Mm. This is a bit more fluffy in a way, but... Um, Good, because we could do some lols right now. On, this is, this is a really depressing... But... No, it is, it is. And it's all, don't worry, we've got the door sound effects coming up shortly. So. Oh, God. <laughs> what, what Rishi needs to do... Through throughout the you know from the November seventeenth onwards, where it's gonna be so 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 grim, he needs to outline a vision. He needs to outline a positive vision for where this these difficult decisions get us to. I still think a lot of people don't really know what Rishi's vision for the country is, apart from almost being a crisis prime minister who looks. Well, looks is is a bit unfair. Who who is competent, I think, and sensible. Outside of that, I don't think people know really what his vision for Britain is yet. So yes, he's going to deliver some really grim messages, but we he needs to tell us why why it's worth making these sacrifices in the long run. I do think Cameron and Osborne were actually quite good at that. Mm. I think you've got a sense of we're making these horrible decisions because we believe that 
opportunity and you know and all of this kind of stuff and i just i need i think rishi needs to spend time really detailing and hammering that out it's a it's a very good point actually oscar it, it, it's in dire need of a sunny uplands um because otherwise the public are left with a conclusion that the only reason that they're doing this is because 12 previous years of a conservative government exactly. have left this particular version of it with no choice in which case you know uh they're doing it because of 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 past failure of a conservative government so uh, it is a very sticky kind of uh, wicket in terms of, of, of the legacy mm -hmm. point. If you don't then say, OK, there's a whole bunch of pain, but at the end of it, uh, this is the, you know, this is the reward. Mm -hmm. You're just austerity 2.0. There's another weird thing that has crept into the debate. Um, so on that you're getting squeezed on the right. Rish is getting squeezed on the right by conservatives that say, what is the point of being conservative anymore if, you know, taxes are at a 70 uh, year high. We are the party of low taxes, and if we're not that, what are we? On the other side, I've seen some uh, research today from the left that are basically saying, oh, well, if you carved the numbers the other, some other way, uh, you wouldn't need to do any of this at all. As if the implication being is that this Conservative government is going to impose, a, you know, austerity 2.0 because it chooses to, because mm. it, because it's mean, <laughs> you know. I, I, so you're getting this sort of weird narrative yeah. coming from the left that, that, that this is a choice without actually understanding or accepting the realities of of the fact that if you did what this 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 report is suggesting which is a stroke of a pen and say oh it's fine actually if we if we cut the numbers this way we don't need to do anything well the whole reason yeah. we're here is because of, of a of a of a market collapsing confidence mm. in the government's ability to to run its own economy in a sound and sensible way so i think we should get rid of that particular argument quite quickly there is no stroke of a pen here or different forecasting that will get us out of the hole we're in mm. i think the big problem is that pinning, is addressing the right but it is some of that pinning the responsibility and this is what the george uh, what this is what osborne and cameron did so effectively with labor after the crash and like labor and keir starmer's labor i think uh, uh, you can see they're, they've learned quite a lot of those tricks and lessons and they are pinning so much this. I mean, Kirsten, I thought it was a brilliant line. I don't know how long it will stick for, but it, I thought it was brilliant in terms of there's now a Tory, you have a Tory premium on your mortgages. Oh. You know, I, just, I thought that, I just I thought mean, that was so smart. And, and there's just, I mean, added to all the other complexities of the inheritance he's got, um, there is this, this, this big problem he's got that for now for the public, decoupling what is you know, a post-pandemic economic issue caused exactly. by global supply pressures which have pushed inflation up and therefore needs to be sort of redressed by putting the brakes on, on you know, putting the monetary brakes on and, and, and raising interest rates, which is a genuinely a global problem. How much of it is caused by that and how much of it is caused by trustonomics and how much your mortgage payments next year as a, as a direct result of government incompetence, where one ends and the other one begins is a, is a huge problem and and these things stick i was watching pmqs yesterday and liam Byrne, who is a labor backbencher now uh, but at the time that he was in government i think was uh, chief secretary of the treasury or financial secretary of the treasury he stands up and the first thing that pops into my mind is a memory from what now 12 years ago when he left government and wrote a note for the treasury saying yeah oh, there's no money left 
That is what the Labour inheritance was after Labour in government. That is what the Conservatives traded on for years and years and years. So not only, I think the government, you know, at the moment, some of the Conservative Party think, oh, well, you know, if we're out, we'll only be out for five years. I can still remember Liam Byrne from 12 years ago writing that note. If you destroy your, your reputation for economic competence now, you'll be out for a generation. Mm, you won't yeah. be out for five years. We've done three of the problems for Rishi Sunak. We've got checkers and balances on the way where we'll be joined by Frankie Leach, who used to be an advisor to Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party. The other two problems that are on the not-too-distant horizon for Rishi Sunak, well, one is kind of by-elections and opinion polling, and that one sort of rumbles away quite happily. But the other, of course, is the trial of Boris Johnson by the Privileges Committee, which is imminent. It's due. Oscar's looking at me as though I'm about to... Yeah, well, exactly. But this is a big, big thing, you know, and... This is this is going to be on Rishi Sunak's radar pretty soon. Big dog on trial. <laughs> Operation Save Big Dog escalated to a new chapter. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I mean, I, I, I think that Rishi uh, would see there are other threats of Boris Johnson rather than the Privileges Committee itself. As in, I think COP was an interesting example of that. I think kind of the the media attention and Oscar swerving the subject. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll go back to it. I'll go back to it. Um, <laughs> you know, and there will be moments like that where Boris, you know, this very legitimately. This is what we call in the trade a pivot. <laughs> it's good though, isn't it? <laughs> no, you nearly it got was, away with it. It was not that subtle. But it is. But I, and so I take. No, but I'm, I'm coming back to it. Basically, right, okay. basically, in terms of like the issue of Boris Johnson from. Uh, Rishi's perspective, there will be moments where inevitably, because of who Boris Johnson is, and you know the way he communicates, you know the media search spotlight will gravitate towards him, and a cop was a good example of that. And there were probably little political discussions and challenges where Boris Johnson's name did come up with Rishi's team, which they probably don't want to be having about a former prime minister. So I get that. I think in terms of the Privileges Committee, I. I personally believe that because of the seriousness of problems that we've literally just been discussing, the electorate will make a distinction. They will view the Privileges Committee and Boris Johnson as one strand and Rishi Sunak and his government and their priorities as another. I don't think, you know, I, I saw that article where it was referenced as a real real issue for Rishi Sunak. I personally don't think, I, I personally don't think it will be. Mm-hmm. As long as it doesn't steal focus. That's the thing, because if he's, this is, that's possibly one of the biggest threats actually from it but it is, doesn't i don't think it, I, it it made of course it will but i don't think that sticks to rishi i think rishi but what is, i'm saying is, is if he's doing things that he wants to shout about and all the attentions on boris johnson getting sunk by the privileges committee then actually rishi sunak gets no credit for anything that he's doing i think but it, i think a lot of the but i i think the opportunity i think we're we're entering crisis <laughs> economic kind of mm. challenging crisis i don't think kind of proactive hey look at me aren't i amazing kind of politics is going to be particularly prominent i think if it does distract a little bit and rishi is able i I think in some ways it might even be helpful if rishi is then able just to get on with making very horribly difficult decisions with a little bit less potential political media spotlight on him but as i said i don't know i I, again and maybe kirsty pleased i genuinely come in on this um i still i don't know how interested 
people who aren't that into politics will be in this privileges committee thing. I really don't. Well, that's optimistic. No, I don't think it'll quite catch fire like some of us maybe want it to. Or think that's, it will. that's optimistic of you, Oscar. I think this will have enormous cut through. And for all the reasons we were talking about at the top of the podcast about, you know, the sort of... Uh, the sort of things that people had to endure during COVID. And that's not just, by the way, about uh, people who have lost loved ones, although obviously that is that is of the utmost priority. And it's not just about health workers and care workers. It's about all of us. We were all locked in our homes for, you know, week after week after week and abiding by the law whilst, you know, people at Downing Street broke the law quite a lot from what we read and what we've seen in the papers. So actually, I think it will have extraordinary cut through. Labour will make uh, an awful lot of it and try and yoke it to Rishi Sunak's government. We'll see how successful they will be about it. But it feeds into a wider story about a Conservative government with changing faces, but in essence, that's been in power for 12 years. And like any Mm. government that's been in power for a long time, entropy sets in it rots it's corroded it's corrupt it's self-serving it's entitled all of those kind of words will be thrown and swirl around this story and i think it will have enormous cut through with people this is whitehall sources taking you behind the door of number 10 hearing from those who have lived it who have shaped policy and who make decisions that affect every single one of us it's Callum McDonald, Kirsten Buchanan and Oscar Reddrop. Subscribe and follow, get involved, be part of the podcast. You can email anytime, hello at whitehallsources.com. And now it is time to bring in our opposition advisor of the week in our wonderfully named Checkers and Balances. Checkers and Balances. This week on the podcast, we welcome Frankie Leach, former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader of the opposition. Frankie, Hello. Hi. I imagine you think very fondly of your time advising Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader of the opposition. Do you know what? I do. People ask me this question and expect me to say bad things, but I had a good time. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Well, we're very grateful that you're here. I think, first of all, I want to start by considering something that's, that's kind of being observed from afar, and I wonder if it's your experience too. This idea that the Labour Party is perhaps shifting mentality in that... They feel like they might be the government sooner rather than later. Do you notice a shift in approach from the Labour Party as a result? Yeah, completely. I mean, I don't think this is a new thing either. I think if you speak to anyone in Westminster, you know, anyone who's kind of anywhere near the Labour Party feels like, you know, it's just a matter of time for them to get into government rather than an if. And I think particularly when I was at Labour Conference this year, everybody from like across the political spectrum was saying that, It just the vibe was just different. Like people felt like they were winning. They were winners. You know, you had Labour Party MPs talking, you know, quite candidly about what they're going to do in government in a way that didn't feel like they were kind of projecting, like, please get us into government. Like it was talking about like serious, like when we're in government, this is what we're going to do. And I think that's quite clear across uh, Westminster as well. Mm. I wonder in terms of, I guess, the advice, that inside view, Frankie, when you were there, you were advising a leader of the opposition who clearly one day wanted to be prime minister and wanted to be in government. But I wonder if you can identify how, how that may have changed now, given that MPs are actively picturing themselves on the government benches for the, as far as the Labour Party is concerned. Yeah, I mean, we always thought we were going to be in government. I think you'd be pretty rubbish in terms of an opposition staffer or MP if you didn't think that you were good enough to be in government. 
Um, and I think particularly after the 2017 result, we were kind of feeling like it was, again, a matter of like when and not if. And we were very buoyant by that result, particularly, I think, because it had been such a battle uh, to get to the point of 2017. Like what the Labour Party now isn't facing is, you know, calls for leaders to resign, people resigning from the shadow cabinet, internal kind of sabotage that's been quite well documented. So I think by that point, you know, if we didn't want to get into government, why were we still doing it? I certainly felt like the only reason why I still work there is because I really believed in the mission uh, that we had and wanted to get into government and was very sad, obviously, when that didn't happen. I think the difference this time is that uh, what the polls are saying is basically after 12 years of Conservative rule, uh, the British public is going to vote for a Labour Party government. And I definitely feel like the slight difference here is that they're rather than voting for the Labour Party, they're not voting for the Conservatives. And I think that's a real key difference here, which is that the Conservatives aren't putting an offer forward now after so long that people really have any faith in. So I think what we'll see is people not voting for the Conservative Party rather than people voting for the Labour Party. And I do think that's a bit of a different thing. I totally agree. I think the support for Keir Starmer is broad, but it's very shallow. And I don't think the public are remotely sort of sold on, on Starmer yet. I was interested though, Frankie, about, you know, we're getting to the point where Labour are going to start developing policies. We do still have an opposition that, you know, technically at least sits on a 2019 manifesto. Do you think when they start to move away from that, which I assume they will do, that that's going to cause a fresh round of kind of internal conflict within the party? Or do you think most of most of the dissent has been purged or has left of its own volition? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's definitely been a lot of people leaving the Labour Party, either by their own volition or directed by not being allowed to be members anymore. I think it's interesting. I, I you know, I think that Lotto have made it very clear that the 2019 manifesto is not something that they wish to continue. They've certainly picked out elements of that manifesto, like Angela Rayner, for example, has been a real champion of things like workers' rights, you know, Unite, one of the biggest trade unions, put out this employment rights paper, which is essentially trying to uh, better workers' rights in this country, but also introduce laws that would help, you know, trade unionists and sort of directly tackle what we're seeing, which is essentially an attack on workers' rights from the Conservative government. And it was Angela Rayner, you know, I think that really pioneered that, possibly against uh, the thoughts and feelings of some people in Lotto, maybe as the rumours go. So I definitely think it's kind of not a finalised thing that they'll be doing away entirely with the 29 manifesto. But I do think that it will be interesting to see where the support comes from. I mean, I think a lot of people said in 2017, the reason why they voted for the Labour Party was because of that manifesto and because of that leak. And they felt that those policies were, you know, not seen in this country for a very, very long time. And I think that the way that the cost of living crisis is going, the way that things like, you know, rents and the rights of renters in this country is going, you're not allowed to have a pet, for example, in rented accommodation. And it turns out that policy to allow renters to have pets was super popular in the 2017 and 2019 elections. And I think if you do away with the soft stuff like that, um, that people kind of really... They remember, you know, when we talk about policies, they might not, you know, remember something to do with the fiscal policy of how the Labour Party would tackle the debt crisis. But they might remember that if you vote for the Labour Party, you're allowed to have a cat in your rental flat or maybe your rent will be capped because your landlord this year put up your rent by hundreds of pounds because his mortgage went up. It's things like that that people remember. And I think if this Labour Party manifesto doesn't include that soft stuff, then that's why they, you know, they might see a little bit of, you know, slipping away of support from people who aren't necessarily thinking about the big political stuff, but are looking at the softer stuff. Right now, I hear that Lotto is still a very, very closed, tight-knit outfit, and even, you know, even the next ring out have no real understanding about what they're planning to do in terms of the manifesto and stuff. Is that your experience 
from within side that, that that it's almost like a bunker mentality still within Lotto? I mean, the thing is, I'm not close to Lotto anymore, presumably because of that uh, that bunker mentality. Obviously, I know people that still work in the Labour Party, my former colleagues. Um, but I think what they're doing is essentially, I mean, the difference is, is that when Jeremy was leader, you had this very kind of interesting dynamic of Southside, which is the Labour Party's head office, being in charge of lots of the party's kind of apparatus um, in terms of like, you know, being responsible for the regions, which is a huge part of kind of like decentralized power for the Labour Party in a way that the Conservative Party doesn't have that kind of element. And then you would have Lotto being kind of very Westminster heavy and trying to kind of marry those two things together would be quite difficult. So you had a bunker mentality for Jeremy's office because it was difficult to be able to work with the two, particularly because people who were working in Southside uh, were from, you know, uh, years where Blair was in charge or when Brown was in charge. So you had a lot of political differences between the two. And I think that it's interesting that Southside now is much more similar to the politics of Keir's Lotto. Um, and I don't know whether the two were kind of working in sacrosanct, but it's interesting to see um, that you've still got that heavy concentration of directors and staff that are working directly under Keir's office and Keir's chief of staff in Lotto. And then that difference in Southside. But it does seem like the two are kind of working much more closely together as they uh, did in 2017 and 2019. So I don't know if that bunker mentality is just because they like to keep a tight ship. They've certainly got less staff um, than we had when we were Lotto. People used to say we were quite a bloated Lotto. We had like 30, 40 members of staff. And I think Keir's drastically reduced those numbers. So I don't know if that kind of contributes to that to that idea, but I'm not quite sure. So my question was uh, with the election, you know, obviously looming. And, you know, for all the reasons we've discussed, you know, like in some ways, Keir Starmer getting the, the, the Labour Party into a position where they feel like almost it's not if, it's, you know, when they win. But for me, I actually vote so very, very quickly. I voted for Jeremy Corbyn in 2017. Uh, I was at university and I was really set on fire by him as a campaigner. You know, you literally, you forget this. You literally had people chanting Jeremy Corbyn's I mean, name I in football I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Chanting his name in football stadiums. And I kind of felt like, wow, this is there's something going on here. Whatever you think about Jeremy Corbyn, he has a charisma. When you get into campaign mode during the election, I think it was quite powerful. For me, Starmer, you know, when we're into those, like, you know, the couple of months, you know, weeks even before an election, I, for me, he'll be he'll be blowing the wind out of sails rather than setting fire to anything. I, I just I just I just don't think he's a particularly good campaigner. But just your thoughts on that, really? Well, yeah, I can I can see why if he was going up against someone like Boris Johnson, that could be a problem. Um, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson are different animals altogether. Like Rishi Sunak is boring, and I think the only person he's probably just as boring as is Keir. So if you're putting them both up against each other. It's not like there's like massive differences. I think Boris Johnson, uh, PMQs for Boris Johnson was sport. He, you could tell, you know, he really loved it. And I wonder if that's, you know, back to his Oxford Union debating days. I think that's probably the thing that he enjoyed most about being prime minister, standing up and performing. Rishi Sunak is not a man who wants to, to stand up and perform. And obviously, as you say, like campaigning is a huge part of that. And I think for Keir Starmer, you know, with his background as being a barrister, you know, he's a good public speaker. I don't necessarily feel set on fire when I hear him speak at PMQs, but he's not that bad. And he often outperforms Rishi Sunak, which obviously is not a difficult task. But I think on the campaign trail, it's not going to be hard, you know, to say perhaps that Keir Starmer is perhaps more interesting than Rishi Sunak. You know, he's supposed to be like steady and sensible. 
And I do think in a in an election that will kind of unfold for him. And also you've got key performers for the Labour Party as well, uh, which is like Angela Rayner. I've spoken about her before. You know, she is someone who can stand up and command a room. And I don't really think Rishi Sunak has that kind of number two who's able to step in for him in those public events and really, like you know, be barnstorming, get a crowd going and also have that kind of backstory, which is what the Labour Party is all about. Frankie, thank you so much. Lovely to have Frankie on the podcast this week. Uh, Frankie Leach used to advise Jeremy Corbyn when he was the leader of the opposition. And now you will all be pleased to hear that it is time to open the door to the <laughs> to the correspondence unit. That's the uh. door. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> what are you What are you sighing about? I hate that noise. What is? I think it's a great noise. Have you not got any oil for that door yet? Well, it's an no, absolutely not. It wouldn't work as well if it was a silent door. Uh, <laughs> right, good. The door is firmly open. I actually want to start by reading some of your lovely reviews that you've been leaving um, for the podcast. Thank you for these. I don't tend to retweet praise, but I'll happily read it out on the podcast, so that's good. Um, Phil gives us five stars and says, Fantastic. A really wonderful addition to the current crop of political podcasts. I like the fact it's only once or twice a week and a good hour or more of, well, today's going to be a lot more, of in-depth conversation and debate with a good dose of humour. There we go. Thanks, Phil. Uh, that's Phil Burton. The Thompson family, who I now picture gathering around, you know, their smart speaker to listen to the podcast, leave a review saying, this is one of the best political podcasts available at the moment. Real insight into how politics works from those in the know. That's you. Uh, certainly up there with, I don't know what these are, the news agents, whatever that is, and the rest Rubbish. is politics. I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> but at least we're up there with unknowable quantities. That's lovely. Uh, and Charlotte says, love this podcast. If I could give it six stars, I would. Interesting and intelligent analysis. Really recommend it. Um, this is all by way of saying you should leave a review and you should also tell your friends. That's arguably the best review you can do is to just share the link, send it. In all the WhatsApp groups you're in, send a little link to this podcast. Get people listening. Let Join in with Whitehall Sources. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Now, for better or worse, let's have a little look at some TikTok comments. <laughs> oh, here we go. This week. <laughs> it's been quite a mixed bag, it has to be said. Um, I have opened on on the TikTok comments. I've got the uh, the Rwanda deportation, uh, which Oscar made a very valid political point that the Rwanda deportation deal created exactly the argument that the government wanted. Uh, somebody called Jim says deck chairs Titanic. <laughs> uh, this person says this is fascinating. This is the video that made me click follow. Um, this person, BM4357, says, Interesting, that's a very long way from the reaction I saw in the Home Office at the time. Um, and Toby says, and this is perhaps the most interesting one for you guys to consider, This proves that the Conservatives just think it's all a game. It's about winning headlines in the paper. Uh, he says, even if that means sending people to their death, which might be slightly strong in the Rwanda context, but it's that's an interesting observation because your point was a political one, um, Oscar, that they were generating that conversation and argument about immigration, mm. Rwanda, etc., and it clearly succeeded in doing that. What do you make of that from um, from this person, uh, Toby, who says that is it all a game? Well, look, I mean, I you know specifically when we talked about the Rwanda policy on last week's episode, you know, like I'm not my value isn't you know for the podcast, and I think for listeners isn't really to make a moral 
necessarily judgment on policy. It's to talk about the dynamics that are sometimes at play within politics. It was a purely political um, uh, conversation we were having. You know, if people are interested, personally, I don't think Rwanda is a particularly great policy. <laughs> if, if you're really interested, guys, but that you know that wasn't that wasn't my job. No, totally. Um, uh, having said that, you know. The reality, and this is what is so, un the uncomfortable truth sometimes about politics, I do think, is that in, I think in the private sector and in businesses and just in normal life, how you compete, kind of the dynamics that are at play, it's about showing why you are better than your competitors. And I think, unfortunately, with politics, often it's about showing why your competitor is worse than you. I think that's just an unfortunate reality sometimes. And I get that's really frustrating for people to hear because they just want a purity of kind of, let's talk about issues uh, and how we make people's lives better. And of course, of course, that is what undercuts so much of politics. Mm -hmm. But sometimes to win that argument, it is about putting you know, the, the op your opposition into difficult positions yeah. so that you can then voice your vision for the world and what you think is right. Um, so I think when we were talking about Rwanda, that's what I was, you know, kind of trying to allude to. Um, and you do want to create divisions within the opposition as well. You do want to pick issues that make the Conservative Party or the Labour Party have fights with each other, because then they're fighting with each other. And, and then once again, you have a clearer route to telling the world why you think your vision for society is, is, is the right one. Mm. Really interesting. Okay, let's turn to another few comments. This one on a Kirsty video. TikTok viral sensation Kirsty Buchanan OBE. Um, this was the the public aren't sold on Keir Starmer at all. Uh, this person say, whose name is Hello says Keir Starmer is a wrong un, but he's a million miles better than any Tory. Uh, somebody agrees with them saying absolutely true. Further down, Romeo says I never trust Starmer nor the Labour Party. Uh, this person simply just says Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and this part. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's the extent of their comment. Um, Love that. And this person, whose name is Twaddle, uh, or perhaps T Waddle, says the shallowness of the UK electorate is astounding. Starmer is sensible, logical, and would lead us better than anything the Tory Party has spewed up. There you go. That's some of the conversation that you provoked on TikTok this week, Kirsty. <laughs> I've not got an image of a cat with a sort of furball throwing up politicians for the Matt Hancock for the. <laughs> 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 oh gosh don't let's not go down the Matt Hancock and animals line again uh, right good keep your comments coming the conversation continues through the week on TikTok on Twitter and on Instagram as well we are on YouTube if you'd like to watch segments of the uh, podcast you can do that make sure you subscribe and follow and if you can leave a review we'd really love that it's really fun to see your reviews so thank you very much for those keep those coming and you can email anytime the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com and all that's left to do is to now close the door to the correspondence unit. There we go. The door's now closed. Uh, Kirsty, Oscar, thank you very much. Uh, love, 
lovely to have you guys here uh, once again. It's interesting, isn't it? As we kind of continue the podcast and life does calm down, there are still big, big issues at play here, whether that's economically, whether that's within the Conservative Party itself and within the Labour Party as well. We will keep hearing from opposition advisors to understand exactly what's going on behind that particular door as well. Thank you for being with us on Whitehall Sources for another week. Thank you for listening to episode 9. Leave your reviews, drop us an email. The inbox is always open. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address to get in touch. We'll have lots to consider next week. It's Autumn Statement Day. So lots of what we've been discussing today will become a reality. We will understand the direction we're headed in. Join us for that. Make sure you follow and subscribe and tell your friends. And we will speak to you next week. Thank you very much. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.